What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Reed Womack. Reed hit me up a little while back on Twitter. He slid into my DMs and said, hey, man, I want to talk about Bitcoin and scarcity. So I was interested and I went over to Reed's profile, saw that he worked at Swan Bitcoin and that he had written an article on Medium titled Accepting Scarcity, a Bitcoin Meditation. And that was enough for me. So a couple of days ago, we fired up the live stream and had a great conversation. Hope you guys like it. Let's do it. Boom. We are live streaming, my friend. How are nice. you? Nice. I'm doing well. Doing really well. Thank you for having me on. Ah, it's a pleasure, man. So we, uh, we connected on Twitter recently and uh, you hit me up and told me that you would like to discuss Bitcoin and scarcity. Yeah. Two subjects that I'm uh, very interested in and interested to hear your thoughts on. So uh, I'm going to get you, why don't you introduce yourself uh, first and then we'll just, we'll break right into it. Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Reed. Um, I currently work for Swan Bitcoin as their customer support. Um, and I'm actually relatively new to the space. So I got really, uh, really into Bitcoin in probably winter 2018 or, or sorry, winter 2019. Um, so started getting in, oh, in in the fall there, right as prices were crashing. Um, <laughs> so one of the unusual folks who became more interested at the very bottom. Um, yeah, and then I've just been reading nonstop. It sucked me in, and I had, you know, while I was getting into it, I was lucky that I I had this sweet job that was two weeks on, two weeks off. So I'd be in the woods with kids in wilderness therapy for two weeks. And, and like writing raps about Bitcoin with them and then <laughs> come out of the woods and just like be reading Rothbard straight for two weeks Amazing. And go back in the woods. <laughs> Amazing. Um, it's funny so how your of- life, it's funny how your life circumstances like provides the parameters for how you can learn about things, especially oh, when yeah. you're super enthralled by them. Cause yeah. one of the things with Bitcoin is that some people just don't have the time to read like yeah. all the things required to fully appreciate it. But uh, mm-hmm. anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, no, that, that's a good point. So, you know, I'm reaching out to all my friends now about it and they're just so slammed with their own work, you know, yeah. heads down about, you know, either in med school or like in their own startup or even on wall street. And they just like, can't, you know, I send them like a 10 minute article and they're like, Oh, I don't have time for that. Yeah. And you get home, uh, you just want to chill right at the end of yeah. the day. You don't want to go back into, you know, exactly until you get hooked by it, you don't know, like now I don't consider it work. I just enjoy reading about it Mm. and learning about it and stuff. But until that, until that shifts for you, it's just like more time doing something other than unwinding, relaxing, chilling, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So that's why I really appreciated that, uh, that job I had over last summer and last fall, because I could just be two weeks, two weeks reading and then two weeks sort of like, testing these ideas out, trying to talk to, I mean, I was supposed to, I was supposed to be helping them with their like emotional learning. Um, and I you know, clearly was doing that, but I was also sort of like, you know, testing sound money out on them. How old are they? Uh, it was, it was the oldest kids I worked with. They're not even kids. It was like 18 to 24. So it was all. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you so, know, they, could, they could have some valuable insights if you, if oh, you, you know, probe them properly. It was all, it was all kids that had been, um, sort of overparented a little bit and then we're trying to take their first steps into the into like independence and it's sort of fallen on their face somehow um and so they like came to our program and um yeah and i was just talking to them about money and independence and bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome what was their what was their like reaction or, or response to that i mean we we were in the woods so in a lot of ways it was hard to like it's kind of the know, antithesis 
yeah, hard to really connect with them about or or see the po- the point of this like crazy technology that's uh, that um, you know they couldn't access because they didn't have their phones, their computers. <laughs> but this is this is interesting, right? Because because Bitcoin is such a generational thing in many ways. I mean, not not exclusively. It crosses generations, of course, but obviously it skews younger in terms of how people think about digital landscapes and worlds and you know mm. just uh yeah. and i and i'm i'm curious like what that demographic uh like when you tell them about bitcoin are they immediately receptive are they resistant are they apathetic like what is the kind of nature of the like the most common response you get when you would talk to these kids about this kind of stuff yeah that's that's a good question it does skew young i mean like as a sad night side note uh just was looking at sort of like engagement on the Swan Bitcoin Twitter account. And I think the highest demographic is, is males 25 to 34. Yeah. You know, that's like, that is who engages with us. Um, but when I was uh, working with those kids and getting into Bitcoin at the same time, um, a lot of them actually came to us because they had sort of video game addictions. Um, that was, for whatever reason, the program I worked with, that, that was one of their specialties. Um, and so with those kids, it was actually a lot easier because their, <laughs> their lives were already in like a digital, they like cared enormously about yeah, it's something. right up their alley for sure. But a lot of them had this, you know, the, the main thing they were working through was like realizing that they wanted to do something more with their life and that there was like more purpose in their life than, than with, you know, becoming a really high level wizard or something <laughs> <laughs> or live streaming Fortnite all the time. Right, um, right. So, so that was actually a cool, those are cool conversations to have. It's like trying to get kids, you know, really young adults to think about like what it is in life that they really want and then go pursue those. Um, and that gelled a lot better or that gelled pretty well with Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, there's so many angles you could take on it, right? I'm just imagining now you or me or any other Bitcoiner <laughs> sitting around a campfire, like out in the wilderness, just like telling these young minds about Bitcoin and like, and making it relevant for their specific, you know, situation and circumstance and just having them be like, oh yeah. And like, you know, you or me would be so passionately into it. And like the wise old dude telling them about sound money and Bitcoin. And shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the kid I or the young adult that I connected better with was a bit of a musician, and and, um, and he was really good at piano. And we had a piano in in one of the main camps, actually. Um, so when we would like come back from trips, we could play a little bit. So we'd go out on trip and write the lyrics. Me and him would write lyrics to like Bitcoin songs. Then come back <laughs> and he would like chord it out on the piano. <laughs> and I think for him it was it was you know more like. You know, I was slowly sprinkling in sound money stuff, but for him, it was just like connecting with an adult on something and like realizing that creative energy is beautiful and awesome. And like he was really gifted at, at uh, piano, so just like did, encouraging him to pursue that. Did the uh, did your like uh, did the organizers or managers or owners or whatever the structure was? Did they take any issue with you talking to the kids about <laughs> like magic internet money or what? <laughs> I mean. Like when, when bosses were around, it was all about emotional stuff, you know, it's like emotions and like independence and how's your relationship with your parents, you know, and then when we're out on trail. <laughs> all right, fuck that shit. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. It's like me and this kid in the back rapping about Bitcoin as we walked out. 
the trail. <laughs> like nobody knew about that, right? Like we dropped back, oh, man. wrapped out Bitcoin. You know, you know the the irony, the the ironic part about you know that is, and I've talked about this a, a bunch on the podcast, but and I'm I generally mean it at this point. Like I started off saying it kind of as a joke, but and I won't get into it too far here, but just the fact that coming to understand, learn about and engage with Bitcoin has added such a, uh, like a huge amount of meaning and happiness and um, like hopefulness to people's lives, the way they see the future, the way they see themselves, that like that should be included in any form of counseling, psychotherapy, like mentorship, because like you might think it's unrelated, but the facts are the facts. Like learning about sound money and what Bitcoin represents and what it could mean for the future has a material impact on people's well-being. So why wouldn't you include that in, yeah. in you know, cult, trying to cultivate a better frame of mind or state of mind for any person, young or old? Yeah, yeah. It, ha it has been incredible to see uh, the few friends that I've dragged down the rabbit hole, like see how much more hope that they have in their life and like how much more like less anxiety about the future and about like the state of the world they have. Exactly. Um, and the, and just the, the tones of the conversations you have with Bitcoiners are just so much more hopeful and uplifting and focused on sort of like what you can do, what I can do to make my life, my surroundings better. Um, like, you know, just last night I was, I was out to dinner with a couple of people who, who were into Bitcoin and a couple of people who weren't. And, uh, I'd like the, that just that mood of the people who weren't into Bitcoin was, you know, it's just like, oh, what's going on in the world? There's like anxiety. Things feel like they're getting worse. And I don't really know what I can possibly do about it. And then all the people into Bitcoin were like, you know, this, these are the four <laughs> things I'm excited about for the next, next year. It's going to be awesome. Life is going to get better. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, relax, bro. It's all going to be good. It's all going to be good. Just do a couple of these things and you'll be straight. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I agree. And that's, I think that's part of the reason why, many of us um, struggle to maintain like relationship. Not, this, this might be a bit strongly worded, but just the nature of our interactions with people that are into Bitcoin, whether they happen on podcasts or Bitcoin Twitter, or you have some you know, friends that you talk about it with, you're just so much on the same wavelength that it makes like everything so easy. Like, and with, yeah. you go, you, then you go out into the normal world and you're like, holy fuck, like all these crazy opinions and, uh, you know, twisted ways of thinking about things and half-assed solutions to big problems. And you're just like, ah, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to fuck with any of that. Like I want to focus in on what myself and a growing group of people really believe can be not only a, sol a solution for us as individuals, for our happiness and for our well-being, financial and otherwise, but for the, the broader world also. So yeah, I, it, I, I it is saying. tricky when, when people like come up to you with uh, problems or, or sort of anxieties that for Bitcoiners are just either not problems or yeah, not problems or not anxieties. And then trying to sort of empathize with that, uh, you know, like anxiety around like, you know, who's going to be the next elected politician right? or, or anxiety around, you know, how they'll, how they'll, how they'll like, whether they should pursue this this career they want or or shouldn't when money is like really tight you know and and for bitcoiners it's just like 
you know, stack sats and do what you want. And <laughs> it <laughs> sounds so simple. Pursue the thing you want. <laughs> yeah, it's so simple. It sounds like like, like trivial almost, you know. But it's yeah. you, you're so right. Like when when the whole Trump Biden or Republican Democrat divide, you know, that's part of so many conversations these days. It's like you're playing the wrong game, guys. That shit, you know, that shit doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, like last night I was talking to somebody who has just kept convincing me, like, you need to pick a side. Pick a side, Reed. Like, what is your life for if you aren't on a side? And I was like, I am on a side, bro. Orange side, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, my life's for me, for like the people that matter close to me. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time on, on like, you know red versus blue yeah exactly it's, it's so silly but man you're uh it's interesting to talk to you because you're so fresh like you're you know coming Super. late 2019 yeah. what was the the eureka moment for you like what you know when did it click and what did what was your immediate like kind of behavior afterwards so so my uh i got into it like most people and thought vitalik was a genius right like watching videos of, of Vitalik on YouTube and my friend who actually sort of but was it just in- because how he looked or did you actually understand what he was saying <laughs> no, don't understand anything what he's saying like, I'm like, not a coder. that guy looks <laughs> like forever like a- and I like saw him next to Putin and was like yeah like that guy is super <laughs> scrawny and he must be a genius he must be smart um, but my friend was started actually my friend who sort of beat me into Bitcoin the only friend I've had from college that beat me into Bitcoin started he sort of started a chain analysis company actually. Um, and he's, that's, uh, he's in the Bay and he was coming out to Denver when I was living at the time to go to East Denver. And that was like my first exposure and he was getting all these cool t-shirts. I was like, Oh my God, wow. There's so much energy around ETH. And I was watching videos of Vitalik. Like this is amazing. Uh, rainbows. Rainbows. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, but you know, price was totally flat essentially through that whole winter. Um, and it's like I had accumulated a little, but was, you know, like not sure, you know, like most beginners, like not sure which money is going to win because right. there's seemingly, they, there are so many different names. And <laughs> you look at CoinMarketCap and they're all on the same list. <laughs> um, but then I came out of, um, I actually went on the Grand Canyon uh, raft Grand Canyon, which side note, greatest raft trip in the world. If you ever get a chance to go, it's amazing. Oh man, I will for sure. I can't wait. <laughs> um, but came out of that, and the price had just pumped from four thousand to five thousand, and and uh, and that that pretty much that price move alone made me go fifty percent in. And then you remember last spring, like. You know, the price came up some oh, right, more right. and yeah. pretty much just got sucked in deeply from that, from the, from the price, uh, moving up. And, and but that was, that was spring 2019. That's what you, that's what yeah. you mean, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so would, you, you got in winter 18, not winter 19. No, I, I got in winter. Like I, my first Bitcoin purchases were winter 2019. I'm okay, really so, new. So the like the pump in spring 2019 just made you think like Bitcoin is, is the one. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, well, I, I was you know starting to poke around on Twitter and realizing that seemingly all the smarter people seem to 
coalesce around Bitcoin. Like, why is that? Like all these random bot accounts seem to be pumping other things, but like all the legit <laughs> people seem to on Bitcoin. And, and then it was really last spring around the height of the pump. Um, and next last summer when I just sat down and started reading Rothbard and Mises and Menger and was like, you know, this is, <laughs> this is why it's going to be Bitcoin and not anything else. Um, and then, yeah, but it, and then after that, you know, and after that, I've started writing a newsletter last fall. You know, I essentially thought that <laughs> that the best use of my time last fall would be to go around and try to convince my whole entire family to, to buy Bitcoin. It's okay, bro. It happens to us all at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, honestly planning a road trip. I was like, I'm going to, like, they don't, they don't really respond to my emails about it. So I'm going to like go road trip to every single person, <laughs> whole extended family, get them to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> um, that didn't happen, but I did start a newsletter and I was writing a newsletter every day to my family. Wow. Holy fuck. Um, that then, it, that then started expanding and now it's just an open newsletter, um, to anyone who wants to, to join, uh, called Bitcoin Buddha. It's, a, it's sort of similar to, uh, like probably more similar to Rob Sorrow's, um, newsletter, but even more focused on beginners. Um, because I feel like I still know that I have these people <laughs> that are on the, the newsletter that don't own any yet. Uh, yeah. So I'm just what was trying. the response to, for, from two perspectives, one, okay, you know, Reed has just become obsessed with this thing called Bitcoin that we don't think, <laughs> like the only interaction we've ever had with it was like it's drug dealers or it's internet stuff. Like is our, is our son, brother, nephew, whatever, yeah. going in, in fucking sane. And two, yeah. uh, like what was their responses to the actual kind of articulation of the logic and reason present in your newsletter? Did like, did they, was there a back and forth with the kind of ideas you were sending over their way? Yeah, so, so the answer number two uh, there was, and that's been really engaging. Cool. Um, well, you know, a couple of sort of like a couple uncles and cousins are interested in investing and so could have conversations related to the stock market and compare, you know, explain the similarities, the differences between Bitcoin and, and equities um, with them. And that's been really rewarding. Um, in terms of the first question, like what do people think now that Reed's obsessed with Bitcoin? I, th I think that like many people who were new or early adopters to Bitcoin, it tends to be people who are like more independent, curious, think for themselves, not willing to accept dominant narratives. Um, and in some ways, maybe slightly more on the eccentric side. <laughs> and those all <laughs> line up with my past personality. So I, I've had a series of other eccentric interests you know at one point i was you know convinced that i was going to uh, be a monk you know i've studied buddhism for years i spent a lot of time at meditation retreats and and so i um i told my parents and my friends that i was you know going to be a monastic and started spending more and more time at a, a monastery so they've ha they've had these ex these experiences of reed doing strange things <laughs> uh which in some ways unfortunately i think has, has made the doubt perhaps my my credibility <laughs> exactly <laughs> and i'm like I'm totally gonna be a monk like give me two years i'm gonna be a monastic shave my head <laughs> and like three years go by i'm not a monastic and now i'm telling you some bitcoin's gonna save the world like, <laughs> you can forgive them for having some trepidation about uh, exactly, buying a hook, line, exactly. and sinker, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I, you know, at this point, I just sort of 
figure that it's like the more touch pieces points you you can get them the better and it's not yeah it's not going to be me it's going to be the price that eventually forces them to come to me and i can just be a good resource for them yeah um what uh you know what do they think of it all now after several months of you know newsletters and letters and discourse about it all like what what's their stance uh i now probably two or three two or three of now uh open positions or I don't think anyone's to the point where they're DCAing. Right. Um, but yeah, some of them, some of them now, some of them now own it. Other ones are, I think that they are more comfortable with it, but don't like realize it's not for scammers. Right. Per se. And criminals just not sure se, about but, it. But yeah, they're, they're not still not convinced yet, but I mean, know, it must like, lend, it must lend some credibility to your, you know, your rantings to them that you now work at a Bitcoin company and actual legitimate companies in the space oh, exist. Yeah. And, and, you know, they <laughs> saw fit to have you on board sort of thing. You know? Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, man. I, I feel like a lot of Bitcoiners are in this uh, situation where, and I hate this, this is kind of like a hokey word that, uh, but, you know, it'll serve its purpose here. But like many of us, I think, have been seekers for a lot of our lives. Mm -hmm. Like we're just, we're more curious where we, we believe mm -hmm. that there's something more, whether it's more meaningful or maybe more mysterious or more powerful or more whatever, and that it's out there. And like the nine to five grind, just being a hamster, we, we, we just thought that can't be it for a lot mm -hmm. of us. And we, you know, and so that led to us probably leading more unconventional lives and espousing more unconventional ideas and opinions than like your average person. And I, I was totally in the same boat. And it's funny you say that because in 2008 and nine, on both, in both of those years, I spent about three or four months in the Amazon learning about ayahuasca shamanism, right? And so at that, you know, that's me. So when I come to the people in my life now and be like, Bitcoin, they're like, yeah, but <laughs> you're one of those people, you know? And, and yeah. you know, even though I've always been very methodical, well-read and articulate when I discuss things that I find meaningful. So like, if you want to come at me, like if a family member or friend wanted to come at me um, and kind of press on my promotion of um, psychedelics or the benefits of responsibly use psychedelics, if they wanted to like push up, push back on that, I'd be fully ready. You know, I'm ready to, to not in an argumentative way, but like I, I'll articulate why I think it's so meaningful and usually in a fairly convincing way if someone's genuinely interested in listening. But, um, but still, I've spent most of my life traveling, exploring, and doing all those things that are a little bit less conventional. So Bitcoin, I think for many people just falls into the category of like John being John, you know, it's like it's just mm -hmm. another kind of quirky thing. And that may cause them to uh, heed my, you know, my advice or, or my putting this information in front of them less than they would if they heard it on the nine on the eight o'clock news, which is the case yeah. with so many people, right? We just we the type of I think you and I and a lot of other Bitcoiners have the type of credibility that I want, which is the credibility that says, I'm not sure if I'm right, but I'm willing to have the discussion and put our and smash our ideas together and see that, you know, what emerges from that, you know, so I have the humility and the desire to do that. So let's just keep doing that and keep iterating that process so that we can come to a greater approximation of truth. That's the credibility that I seek and honesty, you know, for 
all the time. So if, 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 if someone has a history of being dishonest or is seeming dishonest, then they can go fuck themselves. But I think a big portion of the population, they look for that typical mainstream credibility. That guy's wearing yeah. a suit and he's on the TV. He must be right or credible mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever. So, uh, and that's why I think it's great when yeah. these big mainstream people come into Bitcoin, Paul Tudor yeah. Jones, you know, uh, Wozniak, even, whenever he said about stuff, like even Ralph Paul for his, you know, yeah, sure. shit corning. Sure, like, sure. Like still that gives a lot of credibility to like uncle who's an investor who, you know, doesn't understand decentralized systems, but understands macro. Right. So. Yeah. So with each one of those that comes in, you know, it just gets easier for us to say, okay, don't trust me, but look at that dude. Look at that person. Mm-hmm. Look at that person. Look at that person. And so. That that that, and that's just going to accelerate until they're all like, you know what, you motherfuckers were right, and I'll be like, yes, we were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it may take it may take fifteen years to get all of them. But, <laughs> um, but I want to circle back to what you were saying, and like this might lead us into um, what you wanted to discuss. But the you you've all you said you've been into Buddhism for a while, and you had considered the kind of monastic life. Can you give me the backstory on that and? you know yeah details. absolutely um so i i right before i graduated college i sort of had this realization that my whole life had been spent i, I studied science in college or science so so my whole life up to that point had been spent sort of studying deductive reasoning uh, and the scientific method and that i just had this inkling um partly because i think i you know growing up i had actually studied Chinese a little bit, been to China once or twice and had some exposure to Eastern thought. But I, I had this inkling that like my whole education leading up to college had just been trained in Western thinking. And like there, I felt like I was missing half the story. Um, and so right after I graduated, I sort of started self-studying in, uh, in Zen and Buddhism. Um, just found myself drawn into that way of understanding that sort of holistic way of viewing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and started meditating, uh, right after I graduated or, or yeah, senior year. Um, and then just started showing up at meditation retreats and monasteries and just getting sucked into, um, sucked into staring at your mind, <laughs> 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 uh, or really letting, letting go of, yeah, letting go and, and being in the present moment. Um, so yeah, and, and that, that continued through until, you know, sort of got more and more and more involved and, and more interested in monasticism until I was probably 26 or seven, it, um, <laughs> culminated, it actually culminated in my, you know, I was dating somebody at the time for maybe three or four months and, uh, you know, she said, like, what are your long-term plans? And I said, you know, I'm thinking of becoming a monastic. And then she dumped me on the spot. <laughs> um, and then, you know, that led to that, that in my mind was this indication of like, you know what, this is right. This is the time for celibacy. And so then I actually like went and spent a year um, being celibate and moving, like spending even more time at monasteries. Um, and after, <laughs> after about a year, uh, realized that 
there's some human impulses that I don't think you can meditate away. <laughs> Too many boners. I need, I need to get back out in the real world. <laughs> um, and so, you know, still, still go to meditation retreats, um, but, and still meditate, but uh, I don't think that monasticism is my path anymore. What, what was the, prior to kind of realizing perhaps the realities of what that life was like, what was the draw or appeal of monastic life versus kind of trying to embody the principles that you seem to derive value from in the Buddhist, like, uh, uh, through Buddhism uh, versus doing that in the real world. So, you know, the difference between, yeah. Um, Good question. And I think that uh, there are a lot of, you know, there are many different sects of Buddhism and many different monasteries you can join. And and at least I personally was drawn to um, Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, um, who's sort of a Vietnamese, Vietnamese monk who opened a retreat center in France and, uh, and, I spent some time both in France and then at satellite centers and they just have a really, really good community. And the people there are really happy and they smile a lot and they sing and they dance and they meditate. And I think that that community um, more than anything drew me in um, because you can clearly meditate wherever you like. You can go be a hermit, meditate alone um, and sort of look inward exclusively for truth. But um, but it was that community that, that was really appealing to me. Um, but every time, <laughs> every time I would go to the, those communities, I would, I would love it um, and have a really great time. But, but there was something about like some of the random rules that just rubbed me the wrong way, you know, like 80% of the time I could play along. And then 20% of the time it was like, like, I don't, I don't want to sit. What would be an example of some of that? Like, I don't want to sit and eat in silence, you know? Like, like <laughs> I, I want to, like, sit on my swing, like, walk around. I don't want to walk, like, sit in, around this table with, like, 10 other people just stare at my food and eat in silence, you know? Yeah. Like, I just have too much energy for that. Um, I always felt, like, <clears throat> when I was younger, I guess, well, it kind of started in my teenage years. I went to... Um, the Himalayas when I was 17 to do a month of trekking and, and hike up to base camp and tool around in the area and um, spent some time in Kathmandu. And, you know, I'd always be been interested in reading. So I'd go through some of the obscure bookstores in Kathmandu and find books on, on death and on meditation and on Buddhism and all this stuff. And uh, I always, you know, I found it very fascinating. I read it all. And like, you know, especially the Eastern face, but I'm, yeah, even more receptive to all face now for the wisdom that they have if and, and without the dogmatic uh, mm-hmm. elements but i think they all have some some you know really timeless wisdom but it, it, the my, the first kind of my first uh, exposure to the to thinking that way about organized religions was the eastern face like buddhism zen buddhism hinduism uh taoism which i think is really cool uh, you know, a bunch of them, Confucian, they all have really some very interesting elements. And, uh, but I always thought like, is that, was, was that the point? Like to, to seek enlightenment or if you felt you're, you're inching closer, is it to disengage from the world and just be in this almost like um, artificial setting where everything is relatively simple and easy and non-chaotic or 
is the real test of the veracity of these principles and how well you've integrated and embodied them. The fact that you can take what you believe to be the wisdom that you've derived from them and go out into the chaotic world where there's good and there's evil and there's ambition and there's greed and there's dishonesty and there's all this stuff and still embody those things and not just embody them, but use them to, to or act as kind of a vehicle to express them outwardly in the world and perhaps like potentiate them. Like is and that seemed to me like the more the more spiritual path for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that that's one of the one of the reasons that I was drawn to the particular sect I was is that it's very outwardly focused. That for a monastery, they pretty much have visitors and guests nine months out of the year, and they're like running a giant resort retreat center nine months out of the year, and then three months they you know meditate a little bit more in the winter. Um, but if you go to a lot of, a lot of other monasteries, very inwardly focused. And I think one of the the challenges of that is you actually, they don't get a lot of, uh, they don't get a lot of criticism or a lot of people pushing back on their ideas because they can set, you could, you'd set up some structure and then it gets, it intensifies as a result of having a small community intensifies, intensifies, and then can end up sort of like going astray. Um, which is why, you know, a number of small centers in the American West and Buddhist centers have had, you know, sexual abuse allegations because you just have this, you know, build a cult of personality around the, the Zen monk and then it turns out he's sleeping with the women. Um, and that, that's much more difficult to happen at, at the, you know, place like Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery where every day you have people coming in and, and teaching and joining and, and it's, it's, feels a lot more like a real world, um, a real world religion, a real world focused sect um, compared to many of the other, you know, hamlets way off in the mountains. Have right, like six right. People. And I, I can, I can appreciate the differences between those two, but I guess what I'm getting at is like, you, I feel like it's way easier to convince yourself that you're enlightened or you've reached, attained some sense of peace or presence or whatever. If you're mainly in one setting that's fairly calm, that's fairly orderly. Like if you're stuck in traffic for four hours a day, your boss is breathing down your throat for a fucking, uh, you know, uh, something that was due two weeks ago. You just broke up with your girlfriend. Your dad is sick in the hospital. Your mom has dementia. Your sisters are just, just lost their job. And, you know, Trump is president and there's war with Iran. Like if, like if you can, yeah. if you can still, uh, you know, maintain or express or integrate, a sense of peace through all that, then mm-hmm. that to me is a, is it, I think you're less likely to delude yourself into a sense that you've reached or attained some sense of, of calm in a chaotic world because the one is like catering the exterior world to facilitate that calm and possibly even, you know, creating the illusion that you've reached it internally. Whereas the other one is absolutely forcing you to find it internally because mm-hmm. you ain't finding it if you just look out <laughs> in, in, in the real world that's happening around you right yeah 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 I, I, um when you when you talk about sort of like deluding yourself to um deluding yourself about having found peace or having achieved something uh, another one of the reasons why i was drawn to this particular sect of buddhism is is they they emphasize essentially giving up that as an as a goal that like like the goal is to have no goal essentially and um and i think in a lot of other buddhist sects essentially they just 
they just transfer transfer all the anxieties around uh, you know career aspirations into spiritual aspirations. So it's like I'm not making enough money, or <laughs> then translates into like I'm not nearly as enlightened enough. I need to work harder. I need to meditate harder. Right. You know, um, and I personally. In, in my spiritual path, feel much more drawn to the realization that the present moment is more than enough and that there's, there's nothing, if you just look deeply at the present moment, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only when you get distracted away that you can sort of come up with these ideas um, and dissatisfactions about what's wrong. Um, and, and any other layers on top of that, you know, any, <clears throat> any layer of like, I'm not enlightened enough is just you adding an unnecessary story on top of the present moment. So you can just drop the story and go back to having a good conversation with John Ballas. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you mentioned one of the things that drew you to this particular uh, sect or, or set up uh, in France and it's um, satellites around the world was the community. You know, people were smiling, they were happy. They yeah. seemed to be well-adjusted, that kind of thing. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, I think people come for number go up, you know, for Bitcoin, but a lot of people come into this, they find Bitcoin Twitter, they ha they they wind up there and they're like, wait a second, like, th th this is, <laughs> this is special too, right? This is very yeah. special. And well, I'm wondering, posting. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm wondering, like, is, is, has that been part of what's drawn you further into this as well? It's just seeing like, oh, here's another community of people. They're certainly not claiming to be Buddhists or anything, but they're dancing around this thing that has the potential to do a lot of good for the individual and the world. And they're the type of people that are seeing the world through a similar lens as me and who I want to engage with more. Was that a big yeah. part of it for you? No, Bitcoin Twitter is amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Great community. Um, and yeah, yeah, I, I do think that there are, you know, just as I found uh, really healthy values within the Buddhist community, I, I've also found really healthy values within the, the Bitcoin Twitter community. Um, and definitely Bitcoin Twitter can be a little bit more argumentative, uh, much more independent minded. Um, but like the core of what the, the people are, what they believe in is are both really, really healthy. Yeah. Uh, and and what, what do you feel about this? Because I think a lot of, of people, and of course I'm generalizing and so there's always going to be disagreement, but I feel like a, a lot of the nature of the conversations that I have and the behavior that I observe and my own kind of compass is, is very much concerned with freedom, mm -hmm. you know, in all of its different manifestations yeah. and avenues and stuff. And if you look at something like Buddhism or a lot of the face at, you know, at the very, very core, you know, freedom is, is, mm -hmm. um, is one of the, is maybe the fundamental concepts as well. Freedom from suffering, freedom from fear, you know, yeah. you could substitute in the word love for that as well. Just kind of a, a unifying force that kind of negates fear and, and, a, and a lack of freedom. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, and I wonder yeah. if on a fundamental level, that's not what, you know, kind of, that's not their most, uh, th that's not their biggest similarity in a, in a weird sort of way. I think, I think it is. I do think it is. And, you know, both Buddhists and Bitcoiners are seeking liberation from something. Right. Right from suffering um, and whether you find that, you know, I think you find that both combination of internal work and sort of an external, you know, you, you have to go out into the world and, and do the work of liberation. Um, 
And yeah, I've, I've, I have thought about this a, a fair amount and seen this, seen these similarities, even as, you know, Buddhists are talking about the breath and, and all this peaceful thing and Bitcoiners are just shit posting on Twitter. I'm like, there's, you know, both these people are thinking about freedom in <laughs> two very different ways. <laughs> or maybe it just seems different. Maybe they're, yeah. you know, maybe freedom is freedom and the, the Bitcoiners are just trying another avenue to get there. And who knows? Yeah. Maybe, maybe they might be more, more successful in the end. But do you, think, do you think Bitcoin is or is becoming a religion? This is, this is another good question. Um, and yeah, I remember like last summer sort of realizing that it was, you know, in, in talking a little bit with Friar Haas or just listening, reading some of what he's written written realizing that that there well, was if some... you talk to fryer you're gonna probably think that it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah realizing that um that there are some dogmatic elements of it um and that those in th that in some ways the dogmatic elements of it like at, at, with my ex experience with with buddhism those serve a, a purpose up to a point and then you need to let go of them and you need to recognize that it's about that it's about freedom and the present moment um, and being careful not to cling to the dogmatism of like the unnecessary dogmatism. Um, and I, I think that, that at least where I would draw the line, like shit coins, you know, that's <laughs> Bitcoin only is necessary dogmatism, but um, in terms of uh, how you use Bitcoin, or what Bitcoin is to uh, that can't be dogmatic. Um, and that as soon as you start or you just run into problems, if you like are so narrow minded about like, this is the only use case for it. And this yeah. is exactly how you should use it. Um, that that's, I think can be religious and, and unhelpful, but, but I think that this, the underlying spirituality of Bitcoin um, that's not, fit into these boxes, these dogmatic boxes is really powerful. Um, so. And, but, and by that, do you mean the way that people engage with Bitcoin, what it means to yeah, them? Yeah. And the, the guiding principles behind it, um, that once they get for, you know, sucked down the rabbit hole, they start to live a life according to, um, ethical principles. Where and do those come from? Where do the principles come from? Yeah, like why once you get sucked down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, do people start espousing certain ethical principles that seem to have a lot yeah. of similarity between people? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. It's you know, strange to see. It's very strange to see because it's just this it's just this num you know, a number on a screen, a node, a wallet. So like why does it change your ethics? your ethics you know mm. but it does it really does yeah it changes your ethics and you know changes your behavior or it can i, I don't want to say it does yeah. for everybody but it, it certainly seems to be a common thread for a lot of people uh, and you know just back to the the point about dogmatism you know i'll borrow a uh, i think it's a quote from morpheus yes he said you you, uh, you can't be told what the matrix is you have to see it for yourself and I think yeah. that could, like, I always thought with, with religions, <clears throat> whether they be like the more kind of soft, less dogmatic ones, like your Buddhism and whatever, or your more fundamentalist ones, um, I always felt like people came to the, the, the truth 
like on their own, like the ancients mm-hmm. way back. And then they thought, wow, this is really valuable. This is very beneficial. I would love to share this with people. I would love for people yeah. to experience this. What are some like guideposts that I can put down so that people might find this more easily and say, okay, well, you know, try not to do this. Don't do this. Do this. Think this way. This is, and it's like, and I think at the beginning they were like, these are just guidelines, you know, like to help you on your way. This isn't the truth. This just might make the path more clear. And then I think, you know, through co-option and through culture and through everything that got lost and the kind of the guideposts the help you on your way, uh, stuff got supplanted the real truth. And it became that the, the, the real truth is like somehow outside of you or, or can't be discerned through and by yourself alone. And you need all this other window dressing. And that's where I think a lot of this went wrong. And that's, you know, and, and as you said, it's a kind of a good parallel with Bitcoin. Like when certain people describe what Bitcoin is and what you should do with Bitcoin, it's like, sure, I, I, I take your experience as a form of wisdom and thank you for sharing it. But I'll decide what it is for me, you know, and I'll yeah. decide why it's most meaningful for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, some people that those guideposts are useful. Like you can't discount them. Oh, of you course. Know, they're, yeah. they're a tool. Well, you, yours was a great one. But they're not the only tool. Bitcoin, not shitcoin is like something that not, you know, it's not <laughs> obvious when you come in, but it was a really yeah. good guidepost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you, and so you can't, you can't really, you know, get rid of the tools, get rid of the memes or get rid of the guideposts, but just recognizing that they, you know, they have their time and their place and their use, but, but they're pointing towards something else really. And they're pointing sort of like inward towards your own understanding um, rather than being the embodiment of external truth. Right. Yeah. And maybe, maybe this will segue us into the piece you wrote recently and uh, (laughs) that you wanted to discuss, but because when I asked you like, you know, is Bitcoin religion? And you said, you know, it seems to have this effect on people's morality. And I asked why, and you're like, well, I don't fucking, I don't really know. It's just this (laughs) digital thing. But I want, you know, the, obviously it's properties uh, is what dictates how we perceive it and how we judge what it can be used for. And somehow our assessment of those things is causing us to change, you know, what it's, what it can be used yeah. for and what it will and has the potential to be used for on mass and the impacts that that can have on the world. That's how we're seeing it. And then, you know, almost we are, our own reflection in that is, is causing some kind of incongruence that we maybe feel we have to correct in order to be more aligned with this thing, which is like a very complex, I'm sure, and an ongoing process. And then I asked you, you know, why do you think that is? And you said, you know, I don't know. But one of the aspects that characterizes Bitcoin is the aspect of scarcity. You know, this is one of the big, not the only, of course, but one of the big aspects that's very unique about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, if, the, the, what the relationship is between that characteristic or property of Bitcoin and what we've been discussing in terms of why people are, are inspired to, you know, see themselves differently and change as a result of that. You, you wrote a piece on, on, yeah. on this, and I'm just wondering, you know, kind of what your take on that angle of things was. Yeah, I, I, think, that, I think that scarcity is an fundamental part of Bitcoin and that it, it doesn't explain all the changes that you see in people. Um, for instance, I think that people becoming less interested in sort of dualistic politics is probably more a result of the decentralization 
of Bitcoin right. and seeing like, oh, this thing works, um, even though there's no voting. You know, it's an opt-in system. Like, oh, that that's cool. That works. Maybe that's how our political system, sh- you know, should be run rather than this two-party system. Um, that's so. So not every not every change, you know, political change in your worldviews, I think, is tied to, to scarcity of, of Bitcoin. But um, that piece was that I writ, wrote was about um, sort of the prevalence of scarcity everywhere, and and I actually wrote it as a bit of a response to Robert Breedlove's writing about scarcity, um, because he he's written really beautiful stuff on it um, and about Bitcoin scarcity time. Uh, the scarcity of time article. Um, but there were the, the tone of those in some ways was looking at scarcity as this thing to overcome or, um, or like, you know, the title is the tyranny of, of time scarcity. Um, and I think that that framing of it is just problematic because it, then you were just, if you frame scarcity as being this thing to overcome, uh, then you're just fighting reality. Uh, because reality is scarce and I would personally prefer not to time on earth is scarce and that's not like a tyrannical thing you know it's not like an oppression thing that's just reality like you know whether I view it as being oppression and, and tyranny or I view it as being a you know uplifting aspect of reality is up to me um, so that piece was about reframing a scarcity to be like a beneficial part of reality and then, and then seeing it more and more as just a way to, or seeing scarcity more and more helps you get more and more in touch with reality and, and just avoid, avoid suffering and avoid uh, like non-truths. So yeah. the, the piece basically was saying that um, people say, you know, Bitcoin is absolutely scarce and everything else or many other things are infinite. And you were basically making the case that, uh, no, not. everything else is also scarce. It just may be scarce on a scale that one is either irrelevant to us in the case of like <clears throat> the universe, you know, it's, it's so yeah. large that it's effectively scarce for our purposes as a human being, perhaps, but it's, it's not actually. And then you also discuss scarcity in, in, the, in the form of conceptual or the inner landscape where, you know, you, when you imagine a cat was the example you use, you have certain boundaries that help you define in your mind mm-hmm. what a cat is. And so you have cat and non-cat. And so mm-hmm. at some point there is a boundary of what a cat for can everything. be for you. Right, for everything. Mm-hmm. And that's a form of scarcity. And that's the, the case yeah. you were making. Can you elaborate a bit on the last point you were just making there, where you say that an appreciation of the kind of pervasive scarcity that is everywhere uh, can help, you know, can influence how you think about things or yourself in the world? Like, why is it beneficial to understand that scarcity is, you know, is everything, everything is scarce? Because it, it helps you value everything more. If you recognize that, that each object in your life and each idea in your life has an end to it, um, then it, in its, its scarcity, it scarcity gives it meaning and, and value. Um, and if, if something is infinite, it's, in, it's impossible to conceptualize or, or uh, give value to, both monetary value, but also like personal value to. Um, and the, the more 
you can see something as being scarce, the more you're likely to, to give it both a monetary value and, you know, a non-monetary, a, a personal value. But is there, so let's go back to the universal example, right? Cause I, cause you, you I think you brought it up in, in your piece. And I think that I would, I don't know because I'd have to ask the authors, but I assume some, uh, oftentimes when people refer to like the number of atoms in the universe, for example, mm-hmm. I think they're saying, they may be saying that kind of, it's as good as being infinite because in, in relative terms, the numbers are so staggering as to not influence, or, or I think air you used as well, because Roth, yeah. uh, Rothbard, Rothbard uh, talked about yeah. air. And it's like, if air was more scarce, maybe we would treat it differently and it would yeah. be marketed more, be more meaningful to us. But for the things that are so abundant as if to be infinite, at least in the, in terms of our ability to, use them like are, are, are so so abundant that we're not restricted in any way of our use of those things mm-hmm. why is it beneficial to still realize that everything is scarce uh good question and i'll i'll actually use uh, that rothbard example and build it out a little bit more so he wrote that i think in 1954 and it was one of his earlier works like it's his most famous work but he went on to write a lot more and actually develop a lot more ideas after that um, and that text that I pulled talked about him thinking um, that some, I think, universal means are infinite. Um, but later in his career, he wrote about how air, because he used air in, in 1954, later in his career, he wrote about how air property rights weren't enforced in the, uh, in the 1880s uh, when factories started producing a lot of smog and there'd be an apple orchard factory smog would flow into the apple orchard, the apple orchard would sue the factory in court and the courts decided, ruled against the property rights of uh, the apple orchards. Um, And he sort of like rips into those, rips into the courts um, and and highlights that as being a a part of a decline of protection of property rights in the United States. Um, so, so in that example that he wrote about later in his life, uh, air clearly is scarce and valued. Like if you have an apple orchard, the air around you is scarce. Um, and so like, if you look at, if, if you look at air, the way Rothbard did in 1954, it's infinite. It doesn't matter until those situations arise when it becomes clear like a factory opening up right next to an apple orchard, that it is not infinite. And then you do need to make a decision about whether to enforce those property rights or not enforce those property rights. Um, and I, I just think that the more that we can move from 1954 Rothbard saying air is infinite toward air isn't infinite, air should have property rights, <laughs> like literally enforce the property rights over your, of air over your property, uh, the better we'll be. Okay. And what do you think is the significance of uh, a thing like Bitcoin, which it, you know, presumes to have absolute scarcity and perhaps the first external instantiation of that, 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 that we can, you know, <laughs> that we can uh, behold? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. And, and I'm, I'm going to take actually issue with the framing, which I, Whereas I, I don't think it's the first example of, of absolute scarcity. Everything is absolutely scarce. Um, what's different about Bitcoin is that it's the first example where we can easily conceptualize that through time, we can trust that its scarcity is set, 
that we're not going to discover more of this thing or make more of this resource accessible right. um, in ways that it was just difficult to conceptualize, like, like the end to how much dollars you can print or right. so, uh, so end to how much gold that you can make. Right. So the, you're, you're taking issue with the fact that be, scarcity it's, is zero sum. It's, it's one or the other, right? Yeah. It's and binary. so every everything is everything absolutely is scarce. scarce. It's just again, it's a, a how much how much you can how, how much, much will we discover? That. Yeah, yeah. And how much you can see that, and how much you can trust that a certain amount is yeah. actually the amount. Right. So like, right. you know, like we can't, uh, we don't really know how much gold is in the universe, but it is scarce. And so because we can't, we don't know for a fact how much it is. It's it's difficult to value that. It's difficult to to like wrap our head around it and and really use that as much or compared to Bitcoin where you know exactly how much there is. Right. Like both are scarce. One is unknown in the, the exact amount. The other is perfectly known. And it's much easier to build functioning economy around something that's perfectly known than around these massive unknowns of scarcity. Okay. So that's why, <laughs> that, that's why Bitcoin's, that's why the nature of Bitcoin scarcity is, is yeah, valuable it's, it's more, and important. Yeah. It's more like a temporal uh, a, a, a trust that people can have in the, the network through time compared to, you know, Bitcoin is absolutely scarce. Gold isn't. Um, it's like trusting it through time. I think that, that for me is, is the important part or the distinguishing part about Bitcoin versus, versus other things. Mm -hmm. What else is, uh, you know, taking up a lot of your, mental real estate these days on, on this sort of line of thinking with Buddhism or, and Bitcoin and these sort of uh, topics? Yeah. Uh, good question. I mean, I, th I think, uh, as a result of thinking about sort of thinking about diff scarcity differently than, than Breedlove or, um, uh, or Knute, Knute <laughs> thinks about it. <laughs> um, is just like fr reframing it not as the absolute and Bitcoin not as the absolute invention of scarcity um, or not as like a singularity um, and the singular like absolute scarcity can only be invented once. Um, like I think that that's a, a useful catchy meme for why altcoins don't work, but I, I don't think that's true um, because I sort of, started thinking about like, okay, imagine, <laughs> imagine that we come in contact with aliens who have been running a proof of work network for a billion years with a trillion times as much hash rate. And that's connected to a thousand, uh, thousand other trading partners. Like they have a way bigger, absolutely scarce, way more secure network. Like which one, like, first of all, that's possible. And second of all, um, so because that, that hypothetical is possible, that suggests, yeah, Bitcoin isn't this absolute invention of scarcity. You know, it's, it's the first one we've, you know, the first like scarce money we've developed, but it's not the first one that could exist. It's the first one we know about. Um, and then secondly, um, like playing that forward with like, what would end up happening to Bitcoin if we discovered, turns out, you know, alien coin <laughs> that, <laughs> that has way higher, a longer history, all the great properties of Bitcoin, but just longer, stronger, more trading partners and more wealth, historical wealth and more decentralized. Like, 
which one would win and um, sort of realizing that that Bitcoin is powerful because it's the best thing we have right now. But in that situation, um, actually alien coin, you know, Bitcoin 100x um, with a thousand more years of hash power and decentralization, uh, that would be the that would be the the protocol that we would be forced into using because we want all this sweet alien technology <laughs> that we could trade alien coin for. Um, and so, yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking, I'm thinking actually about, I've been thinking about writing an article about this. Um, and it's, and it's, I hesitate to do it because it, because I don't want to be like labeled a shit corner for like proposing this thing. Um, <laughs> fuck that. I, no, fuck I that. That's think, an interest, it's an interesting I don't think thought. that it's possible for any human cause cryptocurrency to overtake Bitcoin. But, but it is possible that Bitcoin is actually just behind the time and we just haven't been exposed to a monetary network yet that is far bigger, far stronger, and far vaster. So th- it's the best thing we have and we, sh- we need to use it. Um, but on exposure, say to alien coin, I don't think Bitcoin wins. So, if if alien coins properties are, you know, stronger. Yeah. So how about this? Instead of the first example of absolute scarcity, whether it's an innovation or an evolution or whatever, is it more appropriate to talk about Bitcoin as the kind of first time scarcity has come under the control or influence of humans. Is that, is that a more accurate way of looking at this? You know, cause scarcity has been outside of our control forever, right? Like as, cause as you say, you know, yeah, uh, it's, it's not something that we, we could ever enforce. Yeah. Um, and this is the first time that humans have created mm-hmm. scarcity have, have, in, are able to enforce genuine scarcity. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a... It, it's in a in I think a, that's true. It seems like a very... It's not as catchy of a meme, though. You know? like, <laughs> <laughs> way better on a Twitter post to be like, absolute scarcity, first time ever. It's like, that's like a lot well, of nuance, you know? It, it is a bit of nuance, but I mean, needs refining. It's the first time I've ever thought about it, you know? But um, I, think we, I think we could do something catchier yeah. with it. But it, it yeah. very much... My, the sense I'm getting after just thinking and, and saying that is like, it's a very much stealing fire from the gods sort of uh, sort of dynamic, I feel, because this, this kind of universal uh, truth of scarcity mm-hmm. that, it, that, that existed, you know, that was untouchable for all of time, as far as we know, we've now brought a piece of it under our control. And we can use that, that power now, that truth for our own ends Mm -hmm. and that's that's a pretty amazing sort of thing and i think all the other stuff still stands where it may be the case that we can bring that down under our control and we have done so but it doesn't work if we try to bring it down under our control in a million different ways like then we might it might slip through our fingers if if we treat it that way like maybe we still can only have it once i.e in bitcoin mm-hmm. and not a billion other uh blockchains or shit coins or other substances yeah i i think that's a compelling argument i i don't think that that's tr- i don't think that that's true 
So uh, I guess this is the question, and and then you can you can respond. But uh, can we only enforce? Can can humans only enforce scarcity in one uh, instantiation? So I, yeah. Again, I don't think that's true because I don't think uh, I don't think that you can make more Bitcoin Cash, for instance. Like that also is absolutely scarce. It's just useless, <laughs> right? So it's it's like like well, you could make more. But this is my point, right? You could make more if you change the consensus rules, right? Yeah. So like, what I'm saying is, is do we have to kind of as a as a human collective agree that we we we've been able to distill down this this control or, or, or over scarcity, but you know it's going to take all of our our cooperation to maintain it because because it, it's going to require us not to lose control of it. It's going to require of us not to change the thing that's allowed us to establish our influence over it in the first place. You're right from a protocol level consensus rules as it exists right now that you can't, you, you, you know, no more Bitcoin cash should be created. But if enough people got together and was like, let's make a billion more than they could. So like that, that's, that's kind of what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, that the money, the strongest money will coalesce around one and, and that you can create, like you can continue to fork Bitcoin cash and Bitcoin to make more. And in that sense, it's not infinite. Or in that sense, you can make you can make more of them and, and the, you know, Bitcoin cash isn't scarce, but still the people running Bitcoin cash, that's still scarce. So I just don't, but here, I just here, don't think that it's that scarcity alone can explain why Bitcoin is the. All right. Let me try, let me try one more time. And, and I'm doing this because <laughs> I'm, this is all coming up on the fly. Like I've literally yeah. never thought about it in this way before, but um, if we accept that it's not that we've discovered absolute scarcity, but the real innovation here is that we've gained control over the enforcement of scarcity for the first time. Um, and, and so is, is it our enforcement of scarcity um, under our control? Is, is, is our enforcement of our control over scarcity what, needs, what we need to maintain in order to keep our control over scarcity? Like it, our, it, Hold on. Let me let me see if I can do better with this. It, it it may be the case that the only reason we have um the only reason why we have scarcity under we have it we have scarcity under our control so long as we can enforce it. And if we cannot enforce it then we no longer have it. And in all other examples like Bitcoin Cash, it cannot be enforced. The question remains, can it be maintained and enforced with Bitcoin. There are, there are threat models to Bitcoin, right? There are, there are ways in which that scarcity may be able to be stopped being enforced and then we lose it. But Bitcoin is our greatest shot at maintaining our enforcement over scarcity. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I do think Bitcoin is the best shot at maintaining, best shot at money and best shot at maintaining enforcement over scarcity um, or maintaining an agreement a collective ag agreement to, to, to abide by scarcity. Um, 
and to see it and to, yeah. Do we have the capacity <laughs> as, a, as a, a species to do that for more than one thing? To enforce, I mean, look, this, may, this, may, this, this, we may, this, like, we may really be stealing fire from the gods here. And are we able to do it more than once? Or do, is it going to require all of our collective will to just enforce our once. control over one, one instantiation of scarcity? Because it's such a monumental thing yeah. to be able to do it at all in the first place. Yeah. You're getting heady. <laughs> and it's also tricky because, because you're framing things in terms of like at us and our and collective. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's like giving me the like communist heebie-jeebies, you know? Well, no, I mean that this is a, we're all, if it was just me or, and Bitcoin, it doesn't, it's not a thing, right? Like that, yeah, the consensus yeah. rules are held up by the user. That's what I mean by the, yeah. the we and the collective. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if like we are really enforcing it. We're just coalescing around this thing. And maybe, maybe. Well, you're enforcing it by, by, by enforcing the consensus rules, by abiding by the consensus rules and choosing to do so, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to have an answer. I'm just, you know, I'm wondering what you, you know, if you got I, any, any thoughts. I think I, I think I need to write write an essay about alien coin. <laughs> think about this some more. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Yeah, like write an essay detailing threat models to Bitcoin. Aliens attack. <laughs> Number one, everything else. Maybe maybe the, the galactic, maybe the, 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 the universal trade networks are just about trading each civilization's enforcement of the scarcity that they've no that would never what they've that, been able to uh, that would not happen like yeah. we would you would move towards one money you would always move towards one money whoever has the biggest baddest money everyone is going to be forced to use that probably i need to think about this more too because <laughs> I, I i've thought about this like i was like oh man it's gonna be great if, if aliens show up as bitcoiners like yeah we've got the second best money but really what i'm going to want is like the sweet alien technology and the aliens are not going to want my Bitcoin, because they have all their trading partners using this also absolutely. Well, there's a lot wrapped up in this, right? It's almost like the fiat thing today. Like if you want to access, you know, Burma's market and notwithstanding that they'll take US dollars. But what I'm saying is like, if a given market is used to transacting in something, then to trade with them, usually you're going to need yeah. their currency to transact. So you're right. It, you know, you're right. It, it could be some some something like that. that. Maybe Menger, maybe maybe Menger is wrong, and that we could end <laughs> up if two things are absolutely scarce. You, you know. All right, we're. I think we're just gonna anyway. we're just gonna end up blowing our own minds here. So we'll have to, we'll have to think about this more. Um, anything else uh, that you wanted to talk about before we uh, no. shut this thing down today? No, thank you, thank you for having me on, letting me tell my stories about rapping with kids in the woods. And, oh, I love uh, it. And scarcity uh, and alien coin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I expected out of this conversation. <laughs> I appreciate well, man, it. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this too. This was, this was super fun. I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll do it again. Did you want to direct people anywhere before we say goodbye? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Follow me at Reed Womack or at Reed Womack on Twitter. Uh, follow Swan Bitcoin. Start stacking your DCA. Stack and sats with us. Um, yeah. That's it. 
Well, dude, it's been, uh, it's been my pleasure. And uh, like I said, I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Until then, be well, brother. Absolutely. Bye. See ya.